Morning, everybody. Or afternoon, everybody. <laughs> hopefully, uh, none of you were blindsided by daylight saving time as I was. That's, uh, hopefully, that's just me that had to suffer through that. I'd like to begin today uh, reading from 1 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. These are uh, verses that we're very familiar with. Uh, they read, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile, you may, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. I'd like to thank Josh for uh, reading this as uh, Paul set an example for us in those Verses there in Acts 17. He came upon a city, and they were all worshiping idols, of course, and delving to things as such. And as we read uh, the beginning of Acts 17, Paul notices this. He, uh, to quote it directly, it, uh, let's see, Acts 17:16. When you read specifically what Paul sees, it says, "Now when Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols." Sometimes we have trouble translating this into today's time, as when we go out into Atlanta, we typically don't see giant bales and such being worshipped. We don't see fish gods around here these days. It's not a very common thing. But that was a problem then. However, that what we need to note and what we can gather from this is that what Paul saw was an issue, and he addressed the issue in ways that they could understand. Their issue was idol worship, so he came to them and he spoke to them about the true God, not the God, the unknown God, as they had known it. And what I can't say is that today this still applies. Let's say we were in uh, the Middle East. We might be having a similar discussion. Or, but let's say we're out in uh, some areas of America. We might instead be having a discussion on the true church and that which is biblical, not um, the various denominations that are about. But today, living in a metropolitan city, living in Atlanta, living in the 21st century, a lot of times the world is questioning whether or not there is a God. That is oftentimes the uh, battleground that we have to deal with. The atheism is at all-time high in the past several thousands of years. And uh, there's a lot of people that don't believe in any source of deity, that naturalism is all that there is. And uh, it makes it difficult to pitch Christianity to somebody if they believe that you're talking about nothing more than a fairy tale in the first place. As a, a young man myself, I've noticed this especially with the youth, the new generation that's coming in. Uh, this is a very, very much of an issue for us. Before it might have been an issue, you know, what is Christianity? Uh, what, what's, what does the Bible say? Now it's, you know, why are we even looking at the Bible? Uh, what, who, what gives this authority? This is just kind of a cool book with some cool uh, moral things in it. But at the end of the day, it's nothing more than that. And uh, how, do we, how do we respond to that? What do we say when people, when people believe that there is no God? How, do you, how can you go to the Bible if they don't give the Bible any credence in the first place? It creates a conundrum. And uh, what I would say is that we follow Paul's example. We go to them in a way that they can understand. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the term of apologetics. Uh, to just simply define it, it means uh, reasoned arguments or writings in justification of something, typically a theory or religious doctrine. Uh, typically, in the, the few times, I don't speak often, but in the few times that I've spoken before, it's been a more traditional lesson, you know, uh, on salvation or on what it, various biblical lessons or... Uh, what we can learn from this, that, and the other on being saved. But today I thought that I, uh, we could just look at a few apologetics. Why? Three reasons. Firstly, they can persuade the lost. There are many people out there that, uh, that have been persuaded by seeing that there's a reason for that which we believe. 
that we're not just believing it because it's good, but we're believing it because it is proven to be true. Uh, I know for uh, myself, I have friends who have saying that they believe those things that, you know, they can, that if they can't see that, they can reason through. And if they can be reasoned through, it can be more convincing to them. But secondly, it strengthens us. I know myself, uh, some years ago when I first became interested in apologetics, uh, my Christianity was taken to a new height because I understood that that which I believed, it was, it was very, it was almost um, euphoric. You know, when, you, when you read something and you see, oh, that makes perfect sense. There can't be any other explanation. It, it strengthened me personally in my Christianity. It made me a stronger soldier for Christ. And I believe the same can be done for any who looks into these things. And then thirdly, and uh, while this might not be a main concern, a strong side effect is that it improves Christianity's image. There's an unfortunate uh, stereotype that perhaps perpetuated by our uh, denominational brethren that um, Christianity is just a belief. You know, we're believing in things that it, faith is nothing more than believing in what you can't see, which we should note that Hebrews 11.1 1 says it is the uh, evidence of substance for things not seen, but that's another discussion for another time. Um, but uh, there's this unfortunate belief that, you know, religion doesn't need to have any foundation, that it's just uh, something to believe in and something that's great and that everybody can be right or everybody can be wrong, everybody can be different, but it doesn't matter, it's all okay because God is love and there's nothing more to it than that. But we know that's not the case. We know that there's more to it than that, and I think it's an it's a unfortunate thing when Christianity is seen as nothing more than that, because that hurts their soul, because they won't take it with the amount of seriousness that it ought to be taken with. So for these three reasons, because it can persuade the lost, because it can strengthen the faithful, and because it, it can improve the image of that which we hold so dear, I thought that we'd just take a look, spend a little time just uh, looking at a few apologetics. So put on your thinking caps, let's, uh, let's see if we can prove the existence of God. Uh, firstly, I'd like to just spend a little time on what's called the cosmological argument. It's very simple, cosmological, as in uh, the logic of the cosmos. We've all heard it in some form or another. It's one of the more common ones. Uh, basically, the cosmos is here, and it had to come from somewhere. Uh, things cannot create themselves. None of us created ourselves. This phone didn't create itself. This desk, this carpet, air, things don't create themselves. Naturally, in addition to this, nothing comes from nothing. If there is a room with nothing in it, absolutely nothing. If it's a complete vacuum, there will be nothing in it any amount of time from then. Uh, but we have something. Here we are. I'm here. Stephen's here. Richard's here. Josh is here. Visitors are here. David's here. Everybody's here. So what, why are we here? How, that, how, how do you, if nothing comes from nothing and things cannot create themselves, but we have something, then we have a conundrum. There is something known as causality, which is the relationship between cause and effect, the principle that everything has a cause. Every material effect must have an adequate antecedent cause. That means two things. Every cause must happen before, and then every cause must be greater than the effect. For example, uh, if you take a paper clip and go to the ocean, you are not going to cause tidal waves. The gravitational pull of the paperclip is not strong enough to create tidal waves. You need something like a moon, something strong enough, something powerful enough to do that. Uh, you know, if a man leans against a mountain, we're not going to push over and you know, move the entire Appalachian range 50 degrees to the right. It doesn't happen that way because a man doesn't have enough weight to accomplish that deal of a, of a, of a happening. Jumping up and down doesn't create an earthquake. It is, it's not enough. The cause always has to be greater than the effect, and the cause must always happen before the effect. Otherwise, the effect would have never been brought into existence. 
And uh, so you end up with a, a, a contradiction almost between the first two things. Uh, but both of these are logically sound. You know that things cannot create themselves, then from nothing comes nothing, yet we know that every effect must have a cause. So when you stick to naturalism, you're stuck in a problem. Matter can't be infinite. We know about entropy. Things, things decrease in order. Things cannot exist forever. So if things cannot exist forever, and things are here, then something must have made it before and something that is greater than. If uh, matter were not made in place in the universe, we would not exist. But we exist. Therefore, there must be a cause with a capital C that caused that existence to exist. Something, and it can't be a physical thing because we know that matter cannot be eternal and cannot uh, bypass those laws, those two laws that we've discussed. For that reason, it can't be a material thing. And that is why we call him God, because he's outside the realm of that which is limited by these parameters, that there must be a cause and effect, that, that, that it cannot exist beyond that. And that is why we call him God. Okay. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, additionally, it doesn't stop there, though. There's another argument called the argument from change, which builds upon this a little bit, and I find it very intri uh, intriguing. Uh, I'm going to go to Genesis 1 real quick, though, and we're going to uh, start the foundation of the scene for this one. Genesis 1, and uh, I'm going to bounce around reading a few verses that you see there. Genesis uh, 1, you uh, read, uh, for example, in verse 3, uh, let there be light, and there was light. Uh, verse 6, uh, let, the, um, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the heavens. Uh, you have... Verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. Uh, let the earth bring forth grass and the herb that eats seed. And uh, let there be lights in the firmament in the heavens to divide the day from the night, etc., etc., etc. If you notice in all these verses, God does something in particular. He doesn't just make something. He also sets something in motion. He lets it start. The, the days and the nights begin. The plants begin. It isn't just, it's not just there. It begins to change. And uh, this is the start of the argument from change. Uh, I'd like to just read uh, quickly a, an excerpt from an article that I was reading when I was preparing for this lesson, because I thought it was great. It was very, very enlightening, and it made it very clear. And so if you bear with me real quick. It's uh, talking about, excuse me. All right, there you go. That's what happens when you click the wrong link. You open the wrong link. Who I thought. Okay, this is from a, a website known as strangenotions.com, and it's a, I thought it was a very good, very good article that made very clear. Uh, I'd just like to read about two paragraphs, two or three paragraphs from this, where it reads, <clears throat> uh, Thomas Aquinas, or, uh, Aquinas, I can never say his last name, famously laid out the five arguments for the existence of God, but he characterized one of them as the first and more manifest way. This is the proof from motion, which can be presented simply and schematically as follows. Things move. Since nothing moves itself, everything that is moved must be moved by another. If that which causes the motion is itself being moved, then it must be moved by another. This process cannot go on to infinity. Therefore, there must exist the first unmoved mover, which all people call God. Now, in order to uh, avoid misunderstanding, several observations are in order. First, when he speaks of motion, he means change of any kind, not simply change of location. Uh, growth and wisdom, fluctuation and temperature, birth, death, etc., are all examples of motion 
or in a more technical language, the transition from potency to actuality, from could be to is. Uh, once we grasp what he means by motion, it's relatively easy to understand why he insists that nothing can move or change itself. Whatever is in motion must be in potency, while that which causes change must be in actuality. Just as one learning French doesn't yet possess the language, and one teaching it does. Now, since the same thing cannot be potential and actual at the same time, in the same respect, nothing can be both the mover and the moved. No one, strictly speaking, teaches himself French. But let us suppose that the cause which is pitting something in motion itself is being pit in motion. Then by the same principle, its change must be prompted by another. I'm sorry, this is a little complicated. I'm definitely going to simplify at the end. It uh, goes on to say, but this change of move movers cannot be indefinite since the supposition of a first element would imply the suppression of every subsequent mover and hence, finally, of the motion that is evident to our senses. Uh, and then he, he goes on to talk about, for example, uh, think of a pen which is here and now being moved by a hand, which is here and now being moved by muscles, which are here and now being moved by nerves, which are here and now being stimulated by the brain, which is here and now being sustained by blood and oxygen, etc. But if you suppress the first element in this sort of chain, this sort of series, the entire, the entire nexus collapses, and uh, the motion under the immediate consideration can't be explained anymore. It just it stops. Therefore, it follows that a prime mover has to exist. Even if you were to say, you know, all these things are happening at the same time, so they're all self-contained. For example, the body example he gave. These are all happening at the same time. You know, your nerves, your brain, all that, etc. It's not one after the other, but nevertheless, they uphold one another. So if you remove one, the whole, the whole chain collapses, which is why there has to be a first change, per se, a first thing to pit into motion. So to simplify it, if there's nothing to change the universe, the universe would not have ever changed. But the universe did change. Not only are we here, but things, we're not just static. Things happen. Things change. People learn. People grow. There's, there's uh, improvement and a passage of time in the universe. Therefore, something must have pitted into motion. Otherwise, it never would have been a motion. It just would have existed. Something outside of matter, space, and time, something already complete, something that we call God. Amen. Um, another argument, and this might be the, the, la the last one that we go deep into, but there's a few others I'd like to gloss over as well, is called the argument from consciousness. This one, um, this one's probably my favorite and one of my favorites. <laughs> But uh, the reason it's one of my favorites is because I had to spend a long, long time, some months ago, reading over it and reading into it because it was a little bit complex. I, but I think I, I tried to explain it to some friends last night at like 1 in the morning. And eventually they got it, so I'm going to see if I can do the same thing here. It's, it's great. It's great stuff. Very uplifting, though. It has to do with our consciousness, our mind, our thought. Uh, but before I get in, I'd like to start with Genesis 1. That is the 26th verse, a verse that we're all very familiar with. Genesis 1, uh, 26, it reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. See, we, we, um, we all understand that we have a mind, that we think things. And those of us we, uh, who are in the church, we understand that uh, when we die, that part of us, that, that non-physical part of us, will go on to another place, whereas the physical part will stay. However, we also understand that there is a brain, and that the two are connected, but the two are not the same. For example, an individual can still have brain activity, but they can be, and I say this with respect, but uh, a vegetable, or they can be um, body dead, per se, because their mind is not there. 
Or let's say, uh, let's say even if your mind is there, but if you get, for example, killed in any other fashion, uh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if uh, what happens to your body. That part of our mind, as we understand as Christians, is going to go on to another place. However, if you do not share our common faith, you might not believe it. You would have reason, I suppose, to believe that there's nothing more to the brain, to the mind, than a physical chemical reactions. It's nothing more than a muscle moving. Uh, no, no more than that. But that, that creates a problem. And that, that's the argument of uh, consciousness. And I'll just want to read a, a short excerpt from a, a man by the name of Peter Kreeft who somewhat explained this, and then I'll get into it. It, uh, it reads, um, he, in an article that he wrote, Excuse me. You know when you change your phone from side to up, it messes up the whole thing. And the whole orientation is lost. Uh, sorry about that. Let's see. <clears throat> when we experience the tremendous order and intelligibility in the universe, we are experiencing. Okay. Sorry about that. When we are experiencing the tremendous order of intelligibility in the universe, we are experiencing something intelligence can grasp. That is, intelligence is part of what we find in the world. But the universe itself is not intellectually aware. Uh, as great as the forces of nature are, they don't know themselves. Yet we know them and ourselves. These remarkable facts, the presence of intelligence amidst unconscious material processes, and the conformity of those processes to the structure of conscious intelligence, in other words, that we can perceive them intelligently, and um, have given rise to a variation of the first argument for design, which is called the argument for consciousness. And it goes like this. We experience the universe as intelligible. This intelligibility means that the universe is graspable by intelligence. Either this intelligible universe with our finite minds are, are so well suited to grasp it are the products of intelligence themselves, or both intelligibility and intelligence are the products of blind chance. And because it cannot be blind chance, the intelligible universe and our finite minds so well suited to grasp it have to be the products of intelligence. Now you might say, whoa, whoa, how can you be so sure it's not blind chance? How can you be so sure that you know, it's, not, it's not possible that our minds just happen to, you know, come together just in the way that they did, that we can perceive things with intelligence. And there's a few problems with that. There's a few problems with that. Uh, for one, you can go into saying that just how advanced intelligence is, it is not practical to assume that it's blind chance, which is true enough. But it goes even further than that. It's actually contradictory to itself. And uh, this is why. I'm going to, uh, you know, I thought about reading this excerpt. There was a man in 1931 from Harvard that wrote an article on this. It was, it was kind of complicated, so I tried to put it in layman's language instead of uh, 80 years ago language. And it basically works like this. If the brain is just a movement, it cannot be, it cannot understand and perceive true and false. Let me explain what that means. There's no such thing as moving true. You know, you can move right, you can move left, but you don't move true or false. You just do. Same goes for the heart. The heart doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't measure degrees of accuracy. It just beats. It can beat or it cannot beat, but it can't beat true and false. Any more than you can smell the color purple. You know, the, the two are not related. You don't smell purple. You don't, um, you don't listen to tastiness. And you don't, uh, and 
purely physical things, like a, a shoulder rotating, it can rotate or not rotate, but it can't true or false. Now, if our understanding of true and false, which we think of in our mind, if our brain is nothing more than a machine, if it is just like the rest of our body, if what we have up here is no more than just a mechanical machine, then our understanding of true and false is nothing more than just a side effect of a machine. It's not actually any more intelligible than, let's say, your lung. It's not, you're not actually thinking. Your brain is just doing what it does, and what you think, what you understand as true or false, correct or incorrect, to be able to measure things is nothing more than a facade. Because in reality, you can't think. In reality, the brain is nothing more than your foot. It just does what it does. I know it's kind of abstract, but I think, I think a few of you are getting it. So uh, either, either uh, as we believe, we can think and there's something to us, or we can't. We're not thinking, we're just uh, beating our heart. That's the same thing up here. But the problem with that is that it's self-defeating because you're thinking to prove that you don't think. <laughs> <laughs> and that creates a problem. Because if you, if you uh, use your brain and say, okay, so um, basically I believe that this thought process, these thought processes we have aren't real, they're not real. By believing that to be real, by believing that you cannot believe, you're believing something. And you've just admitted that you can understand true and false. So, you know, uh, I'm sorry, but um, yeah, it's a problem. And so uh, the way I try to simplify it is that if the brain is just movement, it cannot be true or false. Therefore, our understanding of true and false is either true or false. If it's true, we're good, but if, that under if our understanding of true or false is fake in the first place, then, uh, well, it doesn't work because that presupposes that we can tell whether or not it's true or false. So if you presuppose to tell if it's true or false and say it's false, it's true. <laughs> so <laughs> that is, that's the problem therein. Our ability to reason, our ability to think, proves that there's more than that which is just natural. Because when you look at the natural world, Things just do. There is no understanding of true and false. No understanding of accurate and inaccurate. Your heart doesn't ponder. Your heart beats. The same goes for anything else of the body. Every single part of the body. They're all very real, but they all just do. If the brain is just doing, then there's no understanding. But the fact that we are aware of it, whereas the universe is not aware of itself, but we are, that in itself is proof that there's more than just a physical. Uh, um, um, there's a few other arguments. I'm just going to try to gloss over these. I don't want to delve too much into because we could we could go on forever. But um, I'm sure we've all heard of the design argument. You know, you, nobody walks across the beach and sees a MacBook 10. It's like, wow, what the ocean can do. This, this doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. You know, the, all the materials are here on Earth, but nobody nobody is, is, walks and the shoe forms on their foot. It just doesn't happen that way. It's kind of cool, but it doesn't happen that way. Um, we all understand this. But uh, I, I saw somebody mention an interesting point about this the other day, and I thought it was great. Let's say, uh, we like to say it's not practical. What are the chances, one in you know, 10 billion, that pieces would arrange themselves in order to be something else? Let's say somebody had a, a template up here. Let's say this was divided into 1,000 small squares, and they were uh, the chances of you, I don't know, uh, mixing them together, just clicking random. One is black. Okay, they can be either black or white. And uh, let's say that there's a random assortment, and you have to click random, and your chances of getting that same exact random assortment, 
what are they, one in a million or so? That's one thing. But imagine instead that the black and white squares were facing towards Washington. Not only are the chances of you getting that extremely small, but it's, you're not just getting something, you're getting something that was made for a purpose. You know, it's, it's not just a, you particularly falling in line, it's you falling in line with something that was obviously had art and design behind it. That's the difference between just the fact that not only is it a, can you just walk and have a structure come upon you, but to walk and have a shoe fit your foot size, your mold, the, the design of having good traction and good breathability depending on what brand you choose and all those kinds of things. What are the chances of those happening? When we look at the universe around us, it's not just what are the chances of it happening, but what are the chances of it happening almost purposed for life? Why is it that uh, things didn't just happen and just happen? Why do they happen with, it seems, a particular purpose, a particular use? There's the, the water system that's set up, the way gravity is set up, the way... Uh, oh, speaking of that, what about the, uh, the laws of science that govern these things themselves? Why do they exist? Why are there any governing forces on that which happens that allow for life? Why are things designed in this way? It's not just that they are designed, why are they designed in the way they're designed? It seems that they're designed for a purpose. A purpose that a god who cares about his people, who designed what designed them for. Uh, there's, of course, I'm sure we've all known about the moral argument, and that's, you know, if, there's, if there is no God, then there is no morality. And this takes really two forms. There's, uh, firstly, is there a right or wrong? You know, remove God. You know, when when uh, Mufasa gets himself a gazelle, they don't, the lions don't gather around Pride Rock and hold him to court. That doesn't happen. There, there's no concept of that. The animals just do what they do. There's no right and wrong. You know, when a, when a buck uh, has unwilling sex with a uh, number of deer, there's no, oh, wow, how would he do that? It's just it's nature doing its thing. When, uh, when, when animals do what they do, there's no sense of morality. It just is what it is. So uh, a lot of people in some debates will take the extreme and say, okay, there is no morality. But uh, we, we don't live that out in our day-to-day -day lives. We don't, we don't actually do that. We, we, we don't believe. We, if that was the case, then why do we send people to jail? And it was nothing more than just the cause of occurrences that let them do what they do. One thing that separates us from the animal kingdom is that we don't always do what we want to do. We think, we process, we have compassion. Sometimes we'll act outside of just ourselves. And that's what sets us apart. But this is, it, uh, it implies more than that because if, there's, if there is no right and wrong, then uh, who can you say what is right or wrong? For example, uh, the men that uh, did 9-11, uh, for example, uh, we all know about that incident that happened. Why is it not that they, what they were doing was just, it was right in their eyes, was it not? Supposedly, uh, but they, they believed that uh, the United States of America was um, an evil organization and they were making, uh, supposedly, uh, whether or not they actually believe this is another story, but supposedly, that uh, they were fighting against, uh, you know, the big bad guys. That's their sense. And then you have people on the other side who have their own sense. But uh, who, who's right? Who's right? You can't tell who's right we, if, if there is no morality. So the implications of believing that are just inconsistent with the way that we live our day-to-day -day lives. It's inconsistent with uh, anything, really, having any meaning or having any morality to it at all. And we don't live our lives like that, and we never would. So to, to say that there is no higher being, that means every man is his own God and every man 
may do, quote, what is right in his own eyes. And to do that is nothing but madness. And not, not, not one of us would want to live in a lack of socialization or a lack of civilization like that. And uh, there, there are many, many other arguments that exist out there. There's, I, would, I, would suggest, I would urge all of you, please, go to the internet, look up these things. It, it, it strengthens your own personal faith so much when you go and do research on reasons why you believe what you believe. And beyond that, you can use it in conversation. You know, a lot of people say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a scientist to shoot, I'm not, I'm a film major, I'm a film and media major. But um, <laughs> there's a lot of people that say, uh, you know, uh, how can I talk with somebody that thinks about these things all the time? Is that what we're going to say to Jesus? Is that what we're going to say when, the, when we're asked to be prepared and uh, in the scripture to always be ready to give a reason for what we believe? Are we, can we say uh, Christ that just, you know, wasn't my kind of thing? Can we say that? And that's something I have to think about myself sometimes. Uh, and uh, somewhat of a closing, I'd like to read a few scriptures. Second uh, Timothy... Second Timothy 4, verse 2. I'd like to just take a reading from that real quick. Second Timothy 4, 2. Uh, where Paul, writing to the young man, said, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. And we see this same idea continued on over in... Uh, Excuse me. Over in Second Corinthians ten five, where the uh, the letter the letter reads, casting down uh, arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bring every bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And this is uh, what we were ought to be doing as Christians. We ought to be ready in season and out of season to give a belief for that which we believe. It is a sad thing that this day and. Uh, the society that we're living in, in our culture, it's, uh, there's, you know, you would think people could just look outside and say, oh, well, this doesn't happen on accident. But unfortunately, that's not the case. And so, if not, if not for our own sake, for their sake, for their souls, for their sake, we ought to equip ourselves that we can speak with them, and not just speak with them for what we believe, but why we believe it, Amen. so that they too may believe it. You know, of course, you know, it doesn't matter if you can prove all of this and you have not love. If you have not uh, the, the meaning in the gospel and that Christ died for us. But sometimes you've got to take people a step back to get them there. And that's what we have to remember. That's what I have to remember uh, as in our current society. Uh, I don't know if, uh, what the state is of everyone in here. But if there are any that would like to uh, come forward and uh, have us pray for them, we can do that as we stand and we sing.